The following message is from Grace City Church in Ottawa. For more information, please visit gracecity.ca. For the last few months, we've been uh, going on this series on miracles. And this morning is going to be no different. As Rich announced a few weeks back, we're going to keep going in this series because uh, we've had some very positive feedback uh, when it comes to it. Fortunately, uh, Jesus has made quite a few miracles uh, during his lifetime, so uh, I had quite the, the embarrassment of riches when it was time to pick a topic. Uh, it's a little bit overwhelming because there's just so many different options, but I started looking back at the ones that have been done in the past, and one that I really enjoyed was uh, when Rich preached about the, the coin in the fish mouth. I really like that preach because it's just such a random story. It's not a very well-known miracle. Uh, I don't think I've ever made it make the cut for the children's Bible. And at first glance, it looks like it's just a very mundane and bizarre story. But there's just so much more than meet the eyes. If you have not, if you weren't here on that Sunday, or you haven't had the, the opportunity to watch it online, I invite you uh, sometime in this, this week, when you, you have some time, to go on our website, gracecity.ca. There's a media section, and go listen to it. It's an amazing preach. There's just so much that can be taken from such an odd story. So in picking my topic this morning, I decided to go down the same path and pick a miracle that's a little bit peculiar. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the cursing of the fig tree. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure the first word that comes to your mind when you think about miracle is not cursing. Uh, that's probably not something that we associate together. And chances are, you might not have heard of the cursing of the fig tree. It's just a story that sneaks in between a more prominent or more well-known story. It's also one that doesn't make the cut for children's Bible. But, just like for the coin in the fish mouth, there's just so much more about this story than meet the eyes. And it has to be quite a significant story because it can be found in two different Gospels. It can be found in Matthew and in Mark. And the two stories are more or less the same as they're uh, related in the text. So, uh, this morning, uh, to put everyone in context, we're going to be looking at... Uh, the retelling from Matthew. So that's in Matthew 21, verse 18 to 22. And I will read it from the ESV. It should be on the screen as well. In the morning, he, and that's Jesus, was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come, you, come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this, even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. All right. First impressions from this story. It seems a little bit out of character for Jesus. Just 
walking up to a tree, get frustrated, and just cursing the tree away. Also seems pretty harsh. Uh, Jesus is not necessarily well known for, for very uh, harsh reactions to, to events that goes around. But let's dive in and see why those first impressions are actually misleading. It's actually quite the opposite. Before we get talking about that, though, we need to have some background on fig trees. Fig trees are not very native to Ottawa. There's something about our cold winters interfering with uh, how they go. So I'm guessing that most people here are not particularly uh, familiar with how fig trees go about uh, their lives. Uh, just like most plants, fig trees will follow a cyclical cycles of season. They go through winters where they won't have any leaves and they look kind of dead, but they're really just stocking all their energy. And then in the spring, they'll bloom. In the summer, they'll be going around. And then towards the end of the year, end of the summer, beginning of the fall, there's going to be a harvest. Um, like most plants, that period at the end of the summer and beginning of the fall is when the fig trees are going to bear their fruits. The big, juicy figs that have been uh, growing all year long uh, to get to that point. There's one thing that's a little bit particular about fig trees, though, is that they have, some of them will have an early harvest. That's called a breba crop. And that happens at the very early stages of the year, so in the April to May time frame. And these are normally very small, not so juicy figs, and they grow on the branches and the buds from the previous year. So that's something that happens, especially in the Middle East, because they don't have our harsh winters that would completely kill those buds and branches. But um, that's something to keep in mind, because culturally, uh, those smaller figs would not be deemed to be uh, an actual harvest, and they were normally reserved for the travelers, the people in need. Uh, it was poor people food uh, in some way, where if you were just... Uh, traveling throughout the, the land, and you had a fig tree on the side of the road, and you needed to eat, you could just go grab those, and no one would give two thoughts about it. Like, it's not like you were stealing fruits from the actual owner of the tree. So, if we want to situate our story for this miracle, uh, the cursing of the fig tree happens just after Jesus enters Jerusalem for the first time. Uh, we know because of his time in Jerusalem that this is just whereabouts where Passover would be. So we can actually put that story in the time frame of that Breba crop. And actually, if we had read the passage from Mark instead of Matthew, uh, when it says, Jesus went to the tree, the tree and found none, Mark actually caveats it by saying, because it was not in season. So then, what did the poor tree do? What, what did it do to deserve to be cursed? Well, it's not so much that it didn't have fruits, because there's really no guarantee of a breba crop, and there's also the chance that some travelers might have gone there first and picked all the figs and ate them themselves before Jesus even got a chance to get there. No, the problem is that there's a lack of fruit, but that the tree is fully bloomed in leaves. See, the tree leads to believe that there should be a early harvest, but really there's nothing. It's a trick. It's an illusion. Jesus was hungry, and he needed to eat. And so 
he goes to what appears to be a fully harvestable tree. He's expecting to find some fruits there. But then when he gets there, he realizes it's just an illusion. The tree looks good from afar, but it's far from looking good. So then, why curse the tree? One could ask, well, if Jesus is going to do a miracle, why not do one that would actually satisfy his hunger? Why go like the other extreme and make sure that the tree will never be in a position to satisfy his hunger? There's another story in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, that talks about Jesus being very hungry. And that's during his time in the desert. And that's right before he started his ministry. And in the desert, uh, the devils show up and start tempting Jesus. And the first temptation that the devil throws at Jesus is, well, you're hungry, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And that's the original temptation, for Jesus to use his power to satisfy his own need. Well, Jesus obviously resists that temptation, and this is what he says to the devil in return. In Matthew 4, 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In that respect, the same logic that Jesus applies in the desert to not use his power for himself, but for the greater good, to communicate the message he was sent on earth to tell, the same logic applies to our fig tree story. Yeah, Jesus probably could have snapped his finger and figs would have appeared all over that tree. But instead, he uses this occasion to not satisfy his own need, but to teach the important lesson that he is looking to the disciple. In this way, he's kind of enacting a live-action parable. When we think about parable in the New Testament, we're normally thinking about Jesus telling a story that's very abstract, it's all based on our imagination, but it does relate to a real-life concept that he's trying to explain. Well, in this case, he's not just telling a parable, he's kind of living it out by showing directly to the disciple the point he's trying to make. That parable also kind of plays out in real life, in the event that surround this story. The writers of the New Testament, especially the gospel writers, um, they lived in a time of their own, the Greco-Roman uh, era. And as most writers of that time, they kind of followed literary rules uh, that they loosely followed, but it was just kind of like the style that people would write at the time. And one of the things that is common to writers of that era is that they tend to put together things that are related. Not just related by geography or by time, but things where like the meaning is similar. Things that mean the same thing would tend to be very close together in those writings, even at the cost of putting things chronologically or uh, logically in terms of like a geographical path or anything like that. Um, earlier I said there was some difference between Matthew's retelling and Mark's retelling. And one of the big differences is that Mark actually splits the story into two bits. The first part, Jesus sees the tree, approaches the tree, sees no fruit in the tree, and curses the tree. And then the second part, Jesus kind of tells the morale of the story to his disciples and teaches the lesson. The two parts are the same. As I said that, you're probably like, yeah, that's exactly what we saw in Matthew, and that's true. But Matthew, they're one directly after the other. In Mark, there's actually a whole story that happens between those two parts. 
And that's a story that's uh, better known for most people. It's the story of the cleansing of the temple. It's a pretty short story, so we're going to go through it quickly. Uh, that's from Mark 11, verse 15 to 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. That's an interesting and somewhat unseemingly unrelated story to just sandwich between the two parts of the story of the fig tree. But if we trust in the author's intent to put those together, we have to understand that they're very much related. Because the same thing that is happening to our fig tree is also happening to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem appears to be incredibly busy. There's people going around everywhere. There's merchants selling their ware, buying things, money changing. Uh, if you have like this idea of like a, an old-time agora, uh, you can imagine that the merchant like yelling to attract people's attention to their wares. Uh, so there's probably animals left and right either being sold, purchased, or uh, dedicated for a sacrifice down the road. There's a lot of life in the temple. It's bustling. But it's not worship. It's not prayer. It's just finance. It's just marketeering. Despite being called a temple, really what Jesus witnesses when he walks in is a market, an agora. The temple is a lot of leaves, but has no fruit. The story of the cleansing of the temple is not going to be the focus of this story today. So uh, we're going to go back to the fig tree. But before we do, uh, there's one thing about this story that uh, can teach us a very valuable lesson about what it means to be Christ-like. When we think about the cleansing of the temple, we think about that one time when Jesus got angry. That's generally what people know that story to be. And conversely, if we're talking about the fig tree, I guess we could resume it as being that one time when Jesus got angry at a tree. Well, the character, beside the, the mischaracterization of Jesus as being angry in both cases, uh, it teaches us a very valuable lesson. Because in the Western world, and by that I also mean like the Greco-Roman uh, world of the time, our idea of goodness is very Platonic. And when I say Platonic, I'm talking about Plato the philosopher, not uh, Platonic as in non-romantic. Um, yeah, we have a very Platonic idea of good, which is to be uh, very neutral. Like we strive for neutrality, we strive for balance, because balance is good, neutrality is good. But Jesus shows us a different kind of goodness here. It's a very passionate version of goodness. Just, just food for thoughts. Anyway, back to our main story, the fig tree. If we accept the premise that 
this whole episode with the fig tree is a live-action parable, then it stands to reason to believe that uh, the parts of the story also represent something beyond just the face value. The fig tree is not just the fig tree in that story. In that sense, I would contend that the fig tree, it's us. It's you, it's me, it's all of us, both collectively and also individually. That's nothing that's without precedent. Actually, the fig tree is quite used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel as an image for Israel, especially before, through, and right after the exile. Uh, let's look at uh, a few of the examples that prophet used the fig tree to refer to Israel. First, we have Micah 7.1, where Micah says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Jeremiah 8.13 When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. And finally, Hosea 9.10 Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So in a way, if we look at these writings from the prophet describing what they see, what they're witnessing Israel doing, turning away from God right before God sends them in exile, we can see that Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is really a recreation of Israel's entire story through that exile in that episode. So then, if we are the fig tree, how does that translate to us today? Because, I mean, obviously we're not trees. It's just an image. Well, I would contend to say that the leaves, in some way, are self-righteousness. That's the result of us creating for ourselves uh, a Christian facade where we know the right things to say, we know the right things to do, and we act as good Christians should act. But... It's just external. There's nothing inside to back that up. It's not actually supported by any strong beliefs from us. We've learned to play the part, but we haven't actually let Christ, we haven't let him change our hearts so that we would genuinely um, output these fruits. We pretend that we have all our stuff together, but really, underneath the surface, we're like the little duck uh, under the water where the legs are going really fast, but the, what's above the water is really calm. And it's pretty easy to fall into this trap to create this amazing Christian persona. Um, if we know the right things to do, if we know the right things to say, uh, we can end up not only convincing others, but also convincing ourselves. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and then verse 7, uh, Timothy is or Paul is explaining to Timothy uh, what the qualification for the overseers are in the church. Uh, here at Grace City, overseers is what we would call elders. Uh, same thing, different names. Uh, but just because those are qualifications for overseers shouldn't, be, we, shouldn't mean that we, should all, we shouldn't all uh, strive to achieve that standard as well. But some of the qualification, Paul says, is that they should be above reproach, and that they should be well taught out by others. 
And he goes on, explains why that's the case. The problem is, too often, we kind of go around the idea of being above reproach, and instead what we strive for is to appear to be above reproach. We put what other people see of us ahead of what we're actually producing. Obviously, as Christian, we're called to bear fruits. So then you might be wondering, okay, you keep talking fruits, that's pretty abstract. What are those fruits? Well, that's a question that the church in Galatia also had, so that's probably why uh, Paul uh, wrote to them in his letter to Galatians. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's quite the list. I'll just read it again, just for, for dramatic effect. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't think there's anyone in this room, myself included, and probably myself first, that can say that they have every single one of those fruits that they are bearing. The problem is, if we don't bear these fruits, it doesn't matter how many leaves we are, it doesn't matter how good we appear on the outside, because that doesn't mean much. Actually, Paul writes that to the Corinthians. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. Just like a withered fig tree on the side of the road. I have to be a little bit careful here with how... how I want to approach this because the last thing I want is for someone to hear this, figure out, okay, well, that's it, there's no hope, and just shut down and stop listening. Because the opposite is true. The opposite, in fact, is that bearing fruits is just a symptom of being a healthy tree. A healthy tree, sorry, the francophone came out here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, bearing fruits is just a symptom that points to the tree being healthy. The fruits don't actually make the tree healthy. That's the cause to effect here. And so in the same way, we shouldn't be chasing for the fruit themselves. We should be chasing for Jesus Christ and invite him to make the changes in our own heart that will lead us to bear the fruits. Let's see how that plays out in our fig tree story. Up to this point, I've been telling you that this story is in Matthew and in Mark. Well, I kind of lied by mission because you can find a similar story also in Luke. Kind of. In Luke, it's not so much that the same story is told, but in its place, there's a parable. Like an actual Jesus telling a story parable. And it's about a barren fig tree. And it has more or less the same morale and the same development to it. So we're going to read it and see what we can get from that. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, 
and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Again, just in like original story, we have a fig tree that is struggling to bear any fruit. And in this story, if it continues to not bear fruit, well, it will just be cut down. But what's the point that Jesus was trying to make with this parable? Well, I think on the screen, uh, it starts at verse 5, which is the verse immediately uh, before the parable. And the parable is really told in response to supporting that statement. And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's what this story is all about. It's about repentance. We are the fig tree of the story. And as we bear fruit, we serve a purpose. Just like the fig tree, had it been bearing fruit, would have been serving its purpose to uh, bring satisfaction to Jesus and satisfy his hunger. But if we do not bear fruit, as we see in this parable, the vine dresser, which is just an image for, for Jesus or for God in this case, will care for us to the best way possible. Uh, in the parable, it's explained as digging around it and putting manure on it. But really, this is Jesus reaching out to us, finding us in our sin, trying to enact a change. After that, we are faced with the ultimate judgment, and that's when it becomes clear whether we have responded to the call of the the vine dresser, and we have invited Jesus into our heart to let him do the changes that needs to be done so that we can bear the fruits that he wants us to bear, or if we will just simply be cut down. The band can approach and uh, start getting ready. So, this morning, if you're sitting here and you're convicted by the sin in your own life, if you, you, you take a good assessment of yourself and like, hey, I am not bearing fruit. I've been pretending this for way too long to show all these leaves and let all these leaves grow on me, but there's, there's just no substance underneath. If you know that you've built for yourself a facade, a persona, a way for other people to think that, you're, you're a very good Christian, but you know that down, down deep, uh, there's not much to, to back this up. If you present the perfect foliage, but you bear no fruit, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to open your hearts to Jesus, to let him reshape you into a healthy fig tree, one that will bear all the fruits that we talked about earlier. One simple prayer is all you need to make that happen. That's the first step into the life of a healthy fig tree.